Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast with your host, Brad Johnson. Brad's the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, the largest independent insurance brokerage company in the U.S. He's also a regular contributor to Investment News, The Wall Street Journal, and other industry publications. Welcome to the Elite Advisor Blueprint, the podcast for world-class financial advisors. My name is Brad Johnson, and I'm the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel. And it's my goal to distill the best ideas and advice from top thought leaders and apply it to the world of independent financial advising. In this episode, I talk with Scott Harrison. He's the founder and CEO of Charity Water. It's a charity that's just over a decade old and broke all the rules when it comes to how a charity should operate. This has led to over a quarter of a billion dollars raised, which has provided over 7 million people in less developed countries with clean water. Their goal is that someday every human on earth will have access to clean water. Today's conversation is a little different. As most episodes, we focus on marketing, the client experience, and other business building topics. Most of the conversation today relates to how to make an impact on the world around you and do the work that really matters. Something I believe you all as financial advisors do on a daily basis using that tool called money to help your clients create life experiences and leave a legacy behind for people or causes they love. Here are just a few highlights from our conversation. We get into how radical generosity helps Scott understand true happiness and the secret to helping your clients experience it as well. Next, we discuss the three things Scott did early on to blow up the traditional charity model that was revolutionary to how charities functioned at the time. This has led to Charity Water's backing from the founders of Facebook, Twitter, and Spotify, as well as a number of Hollywood's who's who. Then we cover the secret behind storytelling to create a movement and why sharing stories of failure leads to greater connection. Lastly, please make sure you don't miss the story of little nine-year-old Rachel. So I want to get on to this conversation with Scott, and I truly hope it inspires you as much as it did me. And if you'd like to learn more about the Charity Water story, We've included a link right at the top of the show notes. They're available at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 24. There's a movie his team did an incredible job on. Not only will it inspire you and tell the story of Charity Water and the amazing work they're doing, but it will also show you a lot about how to market properly because it is out of this world amazing. As always, links to books mentioned, people discussed, as well as a complete transcript of the show are available there as well. And be sure to stick around after the show as I'll give another shout out to a Blueprint listener for a recent review. As always, thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Scott Harrison. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast. I'm incredibly excited. I have Scott Harrison, the founder and CEO of Charity Water here with us today. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Dude, I don't even know where to start this. There's so many places I want to go with this conversation. It's greater than a 50% shot. I'm going to break down and cry. (laughs) (laughs) Happens to me too. (laughs) So we're going to get to some really good stuff. You're literally changing the world. And I don't just throw that out there. I'm not saying that lightly. You are literally changing the world. So before we get to the story of Charity Water and the amazing things you're doing all over the world, let's start with something completely off base here. Okay. So... Our audience is obviously financial advisors. Yep. A number of those advisors are hosting events all throughout the country on a monthly basis, weekly basis. Mm-hmm. And in a previous life, you were really, really good at hosting events. One of the top yeah. promoters in New York City. So my first question for you, 
let's say I wanted to take what could be considered an everyday type of restaurant or venue event in my local marketplace, and I wanted to completely transform that to a can't miss event. What's the secret behind doing that? Lighting. (laughs) Start with good lighting. Uh, Go get a lot of candles. (laughs) Most restaurants have pretty bad lighting. I'd start there. I think music is important. Velvet rope always helps. You know, just putting that out in front so it feels special as people are coming in. Guest list helps. You know someone's name as they come. They feel expected. They feel appreciated. A little different than what we were doing. You know, we were racking a thousand people in in clubs with, you know, house and hip hop DJs and charging a thousand dollars for a bottle of champagne. But those are really the elements. We always cared about good lighting, good sound, a great snappy looking doorman outside that knows people's names and welcomes them. And a coat check without too long of a line. (laughs) A coat check. Well, this is if it's winter. Well, this is interesting because a lot of financial advisors out there, you've heard the term probably free dinner seminar and where, hey, all of these are kind of a similar event. And what I found the secret with some of our top clients, it doesn't feel like any sort of an educational event. It feels like a live event, you know, whether whether they have a radio show and they've transformed it into their radio show live at some point venue where you can be a part of an event live. How did you build that demand? I mean, what was the marketing behind that? Because obviously you were very, very good at what you did and you've carried a lot of that skill set to how you've promoted your charity, Charity Water. And so I'm just curious before, (laughs) because there is an amazing skill set there. I don't know if people have told you that before, but I'm just looking at your story and soaking it in. You have a skill set there. And so I just didn't know if there's anything that you could share with the audience that might make it I should say I've been out of the business now for 13 years, but you know, for the decade that I was promoting these top clubs, it was all about models and celebrities. Mm-hmm. So you kind of had, you know, the most beautiful people, the people in the covers of magazines inside the club that would then drive a demand from a customer who could afford to pay astronomical amounts for booze. So I'm not sure how familiar people are with bottle service, but it's kind of a ridiculous idea. I mean, you pay five or $10,000 to sit at a table with $30 bottles of vodka that you're paying seven fifty or you know, $900 for. But you're really paying for the privilege. It's access, it's proximity to the beautiful people, the cool people. So you know, a club promoter has to really run two businesses. One, make sure that there are people you know, with American Express black cards who are willing to pay for that access. But then you also have to bring in you know, the people that are on the magazines and on TV. And basically, they always drink for free. So they get treated like royalty. Hmm. Again, well, this is many years ago. <laughs> well, what's interesting though is what I've seen is the branding and the promotion you've done an incredible job of telling the story. So you had to tell a story as a club promoter, right? You obviously have to tell a story and you do an amazing job in basically taking that skill set and using it now to change the world in a much different way. So even though they're two very different worlds, I see some common themes that have made you successful. It was definitely storytelling. You know, the story we were telling that, you know, I'm kind of ashamed of now is, you know, you get past our velvet rope, you spend all your money on the best alcohol you sit with the beautiful people and your life has meaning. And uh, there's not much redemptive, uh, not many redemptive qualities to that story. But, you know, it worked for 10 years and made us some money. And, you know, at that point, I was living completely hedonistically and selfishly. And it was all about me. Mm -hmm. So let's go there. 
let's say where your story takes the redeeming turn, where you really change the trajectory of your life. You were in South America, I believe, on a New Year's Eve party. Yeah. Well, the club years were really an act of rebellion against a very Christian conservative upbringing. I was an only child. My mom became very ill when I was four. So she was an invalid my whole life growing up. And I was really that good kid that played piano on Sunday in church. I didn't smoke. I didn't cuss. I didn't have sex. I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. I really played by the rules. So moving to New York City at 18 was just this act of utter rebellion. You know, give me my inheritance now and it's time for, you know, strippers and drugs and booze and the fast life. So I spent a decade chasing after those things. And at 28, I, if you, you know, took a snapshot of my life, I'd smoked two packs of cigarettes for 10 years. So I had a coughing problem. I had a drinking problem. I had a serious gambling problem. I had a pornography problem. I had, uh, you know, a drug problem, pretty much everything short of heroin. But my life looked amazing on the outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I'm the guy jumping into the back of, you know, Mercedes with three models and turning out up a club. And, you know, there's a sea that just parts as we jump out and are led to the best table. So it was really, you know, looked great on the outside, but a pretty dark existence. I mean, there were days I would get home at noon. I remember looking out my window at other people on their lunch break in suits. You know, they'd probably gone to the gym in the morning and I was still up from the night before, you know, like this degenerate trying to take pills to come down off of whatever we had gotten high with the night before. So I, I was in Uruguay. I was in Punta del Este. We would always go away on New Year's Eve. We liked South America because it just felt different and fun and reckless. And we had rented this huge compound with servants and horses and you know, magnums of champagne everywhere. I remember going to the fireworks store and dropping $1,000. I mean, just to light fireworks in our backyard. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, you know, I had a BMW, I had a grand piano in my New York apartment, I had a Rolex, and my girlfriend was on the cover of uh, Elle magazine. And I had a Labrador retriever, all these things that I'd been chasing after all these boxes I'd ticked that I thought would make me happy. And I realized on this trip that I had actually become the worst person I knew. And I was morally bankrupt, I was spiritually bankrupt, I betrayed the value system that I've been brought up with. And if I continue down this path, I might not live to see the age of 40. A lot of people in, in nightlife just die young. And if I did make it to 40, I'd probably look like I was 100 mm-hmm. <laughs> by the time I was 40 because it just it takes its toll on you. And this really interesting kind of spiritual tension you know, starts happening for me. And you know, I'm drinking a lot. I remember being hungover during the days. But I start to read the Bible again. I start to read like dense theology and try to find my way back to that you know, moral, spiritual foundation that I just completely walked away with for 10 years. You know, in some ways, I wanted to come home. And it happened pretty quickly. You know, I came back to New York wanting to make a change. It took me a few months. But in the summer of that year, I just sold everything that I owned. And I remember liquidating 2,000 DVDs on eBay in a single lot. They used to be worth something <laughs> 12 or 13 years ago. And just getting rid of everything and kind of made this deal with God that I would give one year, a tenth of the 10 years that I had selfishly you know, served myself, and I would go serve him and others and see where that took me. So having sold my possessions, I remember 
renting a cobalt blue Ford Mustang, grabbing a Bible, grabbing a bottle of Dewar's, grabbing my cigarettes, and just heading north. No idea where I would end up. And I drove aimlessly through Connecticut and Vermont, and I wound up in Maine at a dial-up internet cafe. And there began to apply to volunteer at some of the famous humanitarian organizations in the world. Wanted to find the exact opposite of my life. I wanted to explore the 180 degree turn. And I thought going to the poorest country in the world and not getting paid to do that and seeing if any of my gifts were relevant and could port over seemed like a good idea. So I apply and you know, maybe the smart people listening aren't surprised, but I'm denied by all these organizations because no serious humanitarian organization will take a nightclub promoter on, even for free. Those skills do not seem immediately relevant or compatible. So I'm just getting rejection letter after rejection letter. And finally, one organization writes me back and says, Hey, kid, you know, if you're willing to pay us $500 a month, and if you're willing to go live in Liberia, the poorest country in the world, actually, there was no data on the country at that time. It had fallen off of the United Nations development charts because of Charles Taylor's 14-year civil war. Hey, kid, pay us $500 a month. Go live in Liberia. And you can volunteer. I said, this is perfect. Here's my credit card details. Uh, this is the exact opposite of my life. And again, it happened very quickly. Weeks after getting that call, I was staring at this 522-foot hospital ship with 350 volunteer crew who had come to offer their medical expertise in service of the poor for free. And I remember having this moment where, you know, I felt like I could probably, I just needed to quit everything in one go. And I remember getting hammered before I got on the ship. You know, I probably drank eight beers, smoked three packs of cigarettes the night before, and then just quit and never smoked again and never gambled again and never looked at porn again, never set foot in a strip club, never tried you know, touch Coke or any of that stuff. I really just shed the vices in one go and walked up the gangway. So literally, as soon as your feet touched that boat, since that day, all of that. Yeah. I drink, I drink a little wine and beer now, but that's... Um, a vice in my gut, maybe, but <laughs> that's yeah. it. I mean, there's, there's a lot of listeners. I mean, a lot of financial advisors. It's a tough life and uh, can be a very demanding job, which tends to lead to vices. What went through your head? How were you able to do that? That's a better question. I'm just an all-in kind of person. I mean, it's easier for me to you know, quit something altogether than to do less of it mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe to apply moderation. You know, when it comes to drugs, gambling, sex, you know, pornography, uh, I think an extreme no is a lot better than moderation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I guess I felt like I was, I mean, there was something almost symbolic or prophetic about walking up the gangway of a ship and sailing away to a new life, sailing away on a humanitarian mission. And I didn't want to bring any of my crap with me. I didn't want to bring the vices. I was getting a new lease on life. I didn't want to be held back by them. Um, it was hard. I mean, you know, yeah. imagine smoking two to three packs of reds a day for 10 years. <laughs> uh, I mean, I might have chewed a lot of Nicorette on that ship for the first few weeks. <laughs> Got rid of the cigarette habit, picked up a new Nicorette habit. It lasted a few weeks and then we just couldn't get it anymore. So that was it. <laughs> so, so let's continue the story where, where that ship took you and what that led to. Yeah. So my role on the ship was to be there. I was a photojournalist. Now, I had gotten a degree at NYU you know, through the club days that I'd never used in communications. And I liked telling stories. Uh, I was a pretty good photographer and I was a pretty good writer. When I was young, I was one of the youngest, I was the youngest writer for the county paper and 
you know, at 16 had front page stories. And I just, I loved storytelling, love writing, love taking pictures. So I signed up to do that again, to pay $500 a month to do that in Liberia. And, you know, I just couldn't believe, so I'd never seen extreme poverty before. And when our ship docked at the port, effectively there were 5,000 sick people who came to see our doctors. And this was a problem because we could only serve 1,500 people. So there were 42 beds in the hospital, three operating theaters, and over a, a whole run of the mission, we could see about 1,500 patients. So my third day on the mission, I'm standing outside the stadium at 5 in the morning. The government has given us their football arena, their soccer arena, to screen the patients and see who we can help and who we can't. And I just remember the terror, the sadness, and turning away 3,000 people. We shut the doors. People were banging. They were sobbing. They were wailing. Some of these people had walked for more than a month with their children, you know, with the hopes of seeing a doctor. And there were just too many of them. Uh, we couldn't help. I just never experienced anything like that before. Inside, my job was to document all of those 1,500 people up close. And we were maxillofacial surgeons. So the stuff that we saw, it's almost impossible to describe the sickness and suffering. People with faces missing, missing ears, missing noses, volleyball-sized tumors from 14-year-old children, leprosy people who'd been hacked up by the rebels during the war with missing arms, missing feet, missing hands, just extreme, extreme suffering. To give you just a sense of Liberia's healthcare system at the time, it was one doctor for every 50,000 people in the country. Here, I think we have a doctor for every 180 Americans. So if you got sick, you were just completely out of luck. And you know, thankfully we were there to help. So as difficult as it was to turn away thousands of people, you know, I began to focus on the people we were helping and the blind people whose cataracts we were removing. And I remember being there early on as this woman, 25 year old woman named Marguerite, she'd gone blind, I think in her teens. So she'd actually had sight and then exposure to the equatorial sun had given her two cataracts that she couldn't see anything through. And I remember being there for her surgery and it felt like I could do it. I mean, it took 20 minutes, you know, just a little slit, you know, the tweezers pull out the bad lens, in goes the new lens. And I was there the next day and she's got these two giant, you know, patches and, you know, she's being led around. Her sister was there and I was there actually photographing the moment that, you know, they took the patch away from her eye and she could see for the first time in a decade, she started screaming you know, she tackled the nurse, hugging her. She tackled me. She, she grabbed her sister and was hugging her and dancing. And I think the surgery cost a couple hundred dollars. And, you know, just watching this woman, she had a daughter. I mean, she would be able to see her daughter for the first time ever. And that was what life was like every day. So just kind of imagine that there are 1,500 stories that have those happy endings and people who'd been written off for dead people who might have seen you know, a local witch doctor even and been cut and you know, had pace rubbed on their tumor. You know, they needed a surgery. <laughs> and these amazing surgeons would just cut out the tumor, throw it away in the bin, and then stitch them back up. So it was, just, it was a really extraordinary experience. The cool thing was that I, I went with a built-in audience. So I had 15,000 people on my nightclub list that we're getting these stories. So imagine, you know, on, on a Monday of a week, you're getting invited 
to the Prada party at a flagship store, you know, by me. And then a few weeks later, you're getting pictures of leprosy and tumors and, you know, people that are blind. And I mean, people in some ways didn't know what to think. There were a lot of unsubscribes for sure. (laughs) This wasn't what people had signed up for. But other people began to give money and began to, you know, inquire about how they could volunteer, how they could help serve. And it was, it was really amazing to kind of, you know, almost in an instant redeem the guest list that I had accumulated for 10 years, the people that I had gotten wasted and reveled in getting wasted for a decade. Now I can tell them a completely different human, redemptive, hopeful story about the work of these doctors and invite them to be a part of it. Was there anything that surprised you about the response from that list? Because like you said, that was two completely different worlds. Same list, two completely different worlds. Was there a surprising response that you remember? Yeah, some of the most jaded people were really deeply moved by these stories. I think there was a greater level of empathy and compassion than one might expect from someone who goes to a nightclub and spends $10,000 on on booze. Hmm. So that year ended... And the ship actually would sail around the coast of South Africa to dry dock for a few months. And it was a 50-some-year-old ship, so it was really old. And they would do preemptive maintenance on it. During that time, I thought that would be a good bad use of my time, kind of going to the ship and being on vacation in South Africa. So I went back to New York City with my photos, put together an exhibition in the Chelsea Art District, and then invited all my friends from Nightlife to come and look at these life-size photos and TV walls and morphs and... It was a multimedia exhibition. And then at the end of this whole experience, as they went through, uh, it was designed as a hospital. As they went through this hospital at the end, I asked them to sponsor a surgery. And that exhibition and the event, the closing event, wound up raising $96,000 for the work of Mercy Ships. So I gave 100% of that money to the org. And then I went back for a second year to really document, to follow the money. You know, so many of these people were not givers. They made their first charitable gift. They were cynics. They were skeptics. And I wanted to show them that hospital ship was not now turning into a yacht. <laughs> I wasn't going to be driving a Lexus uh, with gold rims around. You know, that more important work that they had made possible, more lives were going to be saved and improved. And, and I wanted to document it. So it was the better half of two years. What was the biggest thing you learned about happiness? Because it was, I mean, when you look like you had it all together... And you really didn't on the inside. And then now you're just literally giving two years of your life away to help others. What was the most surprising thing you learned about yourself there? I was the happiest I'd ever been in my life. And it was just, it was positional change, right? And in serving myself, I was almost a slave to the sycophancy, the selfishness, the hedonism. And when the focus entirely shifted to serving others, to improving their lives, to ending their suffering. You know, there was such a freedom in that. And it was a great place to be because I'm surrounded by these doctors who could be in the Maldives, you know, the British Virgin Islands with their families because they made enough money. And instead, they're paying their own way to go to West Africa to operate, you know, six days a week on the port. So it was just an amazing experience. And I was able, I think because I quit everything, I didn't feel like I was carrying any baggage. I just ran joyfully into this incredible experience. And what a blast to be able to serve people in this way and to see their lives being changed and see, see people getting their sight, see people walking, see kids' lives saved. You know, the parents that thought were dying. Let's dig in just a little bit. And then I want to get into the birth of Charity Water and how That's that true. came to be. But 
our listeners are financial advisors. And what's interesting is their job, if you really distill it down, is they're responsible for taking someone's nest egg, their net worth that they've worked their entire life for, and helping retirees turn that into happiness, whatever that is for them. Are there any, like if you were responsible for doing that for someone, which you are in a different way, what are some things that you think are the key to helping people realize what that could be for them or how to turn that money into happiness? Oh man. I mean, I think it's very simply, it's giving, giving money away. I mean, giving money away is one of the most joyful acts that you can participate in. You get to live vicariously through all of the causes that you are supporting. And you get to learn about the people who are laying their lives on the line. You get to learn about the people whose lives are being saved through this work or improved. I think, you know, it's frustrating to me sometimes. I mean, you know, now in Charity Watercash, I've been to 66 countries and I've been to Ethiopia 29 times in the last decade. And seeing how little money it takes to radically end suffering and seeing how much, how much money is just latent in bank accounts, so much more money than people need, so much more than their families or their kids and grandkids ever need. But the numbers keep moving. You know, someone will hit their number and then they have to raise the number and then they hit that number after another 10 years and then they got to raise the number again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have people, there's all this kind of inert capital that could be repairing the world. It could be literally transforming humanity every day. It just sits there. So I think maybe it's, I mean, you know, from a financial standpoint, my wife and I have just lived very differently. You know, we're worth a couple hundred thousand dollars and we've given, you know, three times that away since we've been married. So, you know, I kind of keep 25% and give 75%. I mean, that's the ratio of, of how we want to live. So I was in Uganda a few weeks ago and I got a call from the office and a 90 year old man living in a retirement home had seen the video on our website and had called the office and decided that he wanted to donate $500,000. And he asked us, his initial plan was just to leave it to us in his will. Mm -hmm. And when he called up and said, well, do you guys want it now or do you want it later? Of course, yes. <laughs> one of the 20 year olds in our office said, <laughs> we'd like to put that to work right now. So I got back from Uganda and I FaceTimed with him and I said, why don't you come to New York? I'll take you to lunch and you should have some fun with this gift. You know, you were going to die and not see any of it. So you should come in the office and you should meet the 80 smart people who are going to administer and steward that gift and get to know them and... I get to know the organization. It was great. He came, we spent a few hours together and he's been doing this now to a bunch of other organizations. He'd invested very well. He bought a penny stock like 40 years ago that turned into a $130 billion company. Wow. Uh, he did so well that Charles Schwab invited him out to dinner. <laughs> so he's just been giving out of this account. He lived modestly his entire life. He had a tiny apartment in New York City, 400 square feet, lives in a very small retirement community. And instead of kind of hoarding this money, he's just joyfully giving it all away and getting exposed to so much good work going on in the world. So I think, you know, financial advisors can help unlock that joy. And I think the more you give, the more you give. I mean, we've seen people almost get addicted to giving, to saying yes. And of course, you have to be good stewards of that and need to do due diligence on the organization. And there's checks and balances and all that. But helping people find the joy of giving. And, and I think that needs to be authentic. So, you know, the advisor probably needs to have some personal experience with giving their money and seeing their money make an impact with radical generosity if they're going to share that, you know, with any sort of authenticity. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get into charity water and how you guys have done it differently. 
my buddy, John Rulin, who was nice enough to connect us. He's the connector of connectors out there. So that's my shout out to John. But um, And one of the nicest guys, huh? Yes, he is. So he likes to call you guys the Apple of charity as an Apple, the tech company, which is cool. Yeah. And what's interesting is the more I learn about your story, you know, the old Apple campaign, think different. You guys mm. thought very differently about charity. And one of those was 100% of all giving actually goes to the charitable cause. It's not a certain... I know a lot of charities, it's like pennies on the dollar actually yeah. to the cause. So let's back up a step. Let's go to the actual issue that most yeah. people don't even understand that water is an issue because we just drink it right out of a faucet and don't even think about it. So let's start there. But then as you uncovered this problem, sure. let's go into how you thought differently about actually building a charity that would solve that problem. Sure. Well, I discovered water on Mercy Ships and it was super fortunate for me. You know, this is a huge 522 foot hospital ship. Uh, doctors, they've been at this for 25 years. But there was a little bit of money that they always allocated for a volunteer to go out and dig some wells and just have a few communities get clean water. So as my job as photojournalist, I had to document everything happening on the mission. And I would jump in his Land Rover and I would drive into the rural villages. And when I got out there, I saw people were drinking from swamps. Like they were drinking nasty, green, turbid, infested water that I wouldn't let my dog drink. If I saw my dog getting near this water, I would yank his chain back so fast. And I'm watching children drink this water. So I have this huge aha moment. Holy crap. No wonder thousands of people are turning up sick to see our doctors. This is the condition of water in the villages. And more than half of Liberians were drinking from swamps, ponds, and rivers. So half the country didn't have its most basic need for health met. So this is happening. I'm watching this guy out in the villages. I'm seeing the conditions. I'm scrubbed up, documenting these expensive surgeries. And I'm telling the surgeons what I'm seeing. And they're all encouraging me. They're like, yeah, we know. Water makes people sick. We would have a lot less work to do if people had clean water to drink. So I really stumbled on the issue through health. And at the time, there were a billion people worldwide without access to clean water. So I just couldn't believe this. None of my friends were talking about the water crisis. The largest water organization in America was raising $12 million a year to serve a billion people. So there was no sense of scale, no energy, no awareness, you know, writ large about this incredibly important issue. Some of the statistics, 52% of all disease throughout the developing world, throughout the third world, as some people would say, is caused by bad water and lack of toilets. So half the sick people around the world today do not need to be sick if they just had clean water and a toilet. So, you know, a thousand kids will die today, bad water. I mean, it takes an incredible toll on people. So that's kind of the state of the issue. A lot of progress has been made over 10 years. So that number is now down to 663 million. So we went from about a seventh of the planet to a tenth of the planet. But, you know, it's twice the population of America. So you think about, you know, just the sheer number of people today that will drink water that could kill them today that could kill their children of diarrhea, of gohartsia, of cholera, of uh, they could blind them with trachoma. You know, it's a really shocking epidemic. And it, it takes such a human toll on people's lives if they don't have clean water. So we've said for years, water changes everything. It means health. It means education. It means money to the local economy. In so many of the places where we work around the world, women are walking eight hours a day to get dirty water. They're not even going to get clean water. 
Mm. So imagine hauling 40 pounds with a clay pot on your back of water that you got from a river. And when you went to get water from the river, you were afraid of being attacked by crocodiles because the woman that you know was your best friend was just snatched three weeks earlier and was never seen again as you saw a crocodile drag her into the river as she was getting her water. And you know your younger sister a couple of years ago got raped in the bush on that long walk for water. So you're a woman, you're tasked with getting the water and you know you take this kind of perilous journey every single day to then get disgusting water that you bring home and give to your kids, knowing it could kill them. These are the circumstances you've been born into. And you're making less than a dollar a day. You know, you're living off of the maize that you're growing or the soybeans that you're growing. And the terrible irony in so many of these communities is that they are living on top a couple hundred feet above the clean water that could save their lives and improve their lives. And it's one of the most extraordinary things to go in to bring a million dollar drilling rig to bring hydrologists and compressors and trucks and basically stick a straw on the ground, hit massive aquifers of clean water, a couple hundred feet down, so 20 story, 25 story building down. And three days later, you know, see a community drinking clean water for the first time. So that's what we've been up to for the last 10 years. And I'll talk about the business model, but I just, I don't believe there's a better issue in the world. If you want to improve people's lives, if you want to end suffering, giving humans access to clean water to drink with, to bathe, to wash with is just, it's one of the most powerful things that you can do. It's one of the most incredible gifts that you can give. And I believe that way more today with you know a lot more sky miles <laughs> than I did when I started. So that was the issue that I was going to tackle with a very simple mission. So the mission would be see a day on earth when everybody has clean water to drink and continue fighting to make sure you know, kids aren't dying because they have to drink from a swamp and women aren't getting raped because they had to walk eight hours through the bush or through the jungle. So that would be the mission and take a solution agnostic approach. Sometimes wells are right. We work in India where we have to build rainwater harvesting systems. We work in Nepal where we can't drill wells and we build these huge gravity-fed spring protection systems and networks of pipes. and Lots of different things work in a lot of different contexts. I think we employ 13 solutions across the portfolio. But we know how to bring clean water to every single person on Earth. So that's the amazing thing about this issue. There are issues that we are working on where we are looking for cures for diseases they may exist in test tubes. They may be five years of research on or 10 years. No one is scratching their head right now, wondering how to get a single person on earth clean water. We just know how to do it. The solutions are there. There's not the will to serve this bottom 663 million people, 80% of them living rurally. You know, we're not selling them our products yet. So we're not incentivized to go and improve their lives. But it's not a mystery. We actually know how to do it. So that's the issue. When I started, you know, I had the, so we'll rewind now. So, you know, I'd partied for 10 years. I'd spent two years, 28 to 30 on the ship. I come back to New York City at 30. I'm completely broke because I've given all of my money to Mercy Ships and the people that I've met along the way to try to support them post-surgery in many cases. And my old club partner takes me in and says I can sleep on his closet floor. It was a walk-in closet of um, his Soho loft in New York City. And I was running around telling everybody I wanted to end the water crisis. I wanted to see a day on earth where nobody drank dirty water simply because of where they were born. And as I started talking to my friends, I realized this was not going to be easy because there was a huge disenchantment 
a huge skepticism when it came to charity. And I would hear expressions like, charities are black holes. I don't know where my money goes. I don't know how much of my money will actually reach the people that I'm trying to help. And I came across some surveys. Uh, I remember flipping through USA Today, one of those polls. said 42% of Americans don't trust charities. 42%. 70% of Americans think charities waste money. So I realized if I was going to make a dent in the water crisis, I would need to approach the market completely differently than the traditional charities had if I was going to involve people my age and younger. My friends were not giving to the Salvation Army. They would never give a dollar to the United Way. They didn't know what the March of Dimes did. You know, charities that bought their physical mailing addresses and sent them paper asking them to put checks in self-addressed stamped envelopes, this was not the future. This was not how people were going to be responding. And so I just had a couple of bold ideas. I mean, we really looked at, you know, how do traditional charities operate? And then said, what would the opposite of that be? If a charity operated with opacity, what would hyper-transparency look like? If a charity couldn't tell you where your money went, what would it look like to use 100% of the money and track every dollar? So we just built a business model from scratch that was very different. And you know, was almost crowdsourced through conversations with skeptics. And you know, really three main pillars. The first one was to take the objection people have around money completely off the table. So you could never use that objection with us. How much of my money will go? 100%. We would find a way to use 100% of every donation we ever took from the public to only directly build water projects and serve people with clean drinking water for the first time. We would even figure out a way to pay back credit card fees. So if you went online and dropped $1,000 on your Amex, I wish I got $1,000. I've asked Amex. I don't. I get $970. We wanted to send $1,000. Money we didn't even get. So it would be this pure, unadulterated model. And then I literally opened up two bank accounts. I put $100 in that bank account to kind of seed it, which the public funding would go. And then in the second bank account, so that's where the overhead money is going to go. And I'm somehow going to go and figure out how to convince people that it's really cool to support our staff and our office one day, our flights as we develop these projects. You know, health insurance maybe one day and dental and a copier and the toner and, and the overhead would be completely separate. And that would be an incredible challenge starting two businesses with $100 each and then having to run them in perfect balance. Because if we raise too much money for the water projects, we'd go broke and miss payroll. If we raise too much money on the overhead side, we wouldn't look efficient. So that would be the dance of the 100% model. The second thing was because money would not be fungible in our organization, we could use technology to track these dollars with integrity. So if you gave me $61, I could say, here's where the $61 landed. I could just track it because I didn't step on it. So proof was really the second pillar. And we were fortunate to start Charity Water the same year as Google Earth. And I met the Google Earth founder and realized that this guy had just built a platform where we could put every water point, whether it was a well or a rainwater system or a spring or a biosand filter, we could geolocate it and make all of this data transparent to the public. So you, Brad, can go you know, with a $50 handheld GPS device to Best Buy, buy this thing, and then pull a data set off of our website and go visit every project across 24 countries. There would be no hiding. And people said at the time, well, what if donors went on their own and found their projects were broken? We're like, well, we'd want to freaking know they're broken so we could go and fix them. You know, why do you think we're doing this? 
you know, we're not in the business to raise money. Like we <laughs> believe me, running a nonprofit is, uh, there are many, many better ways to earn a living. Most of the people here have taken massive pay cuts. Some of them have left tech companies, taken 50% of their pay, given up stock options, given up equity, you know, to use their gifts in the service of others. So we want our work to have lasting, sustainable impact. So, you know, we were just always looking for ways to prove where the money went, connect donors using technology to the impact that their gifts had. And to really love our donors, you know, not look at donors as a means to an end. We were doing a service to them. If we could restore their faith in charity, if we could create a virtuous cycle, a loop where they knew that their money had reached the intended purpose and it improved lives, maybe they would give more generously to other things. Mm -hmm. Third thing was to build a beautiful brand, as you said. As I looked at the sector, I didn't see any Apple of charity. I didn't see any Nike. I didn't see any Tesla or Virgin. Charities used shame and guilt to peddle their wares. Everybody, I'm sure, remembers those old commercials on TV. You know, the kids with flies in slow motion, locking eyes with the camera. And then the 800 number comes up and, you know, it works. People feel shameful. They feel guilty. We have too much. They pull out their credit card. They call the number. But nobody wants to tell anyone else about that charity. Nobody wants to spread the word. Nobody wants to wear the t-shirt of a charity that uses guilt and shame to coerce them into giving. So, you know, I thought Apple and Nike were just two very different brands. You know, Nike could market and say, Brad, you're so fat and lazy. Turn off the TV, stop eating the Cheetos and go for a run. Mm -hmm. But they don't. For years, they've marketed saying there's greatness within you. There is potential that is unlocked. If you don't have arms, you can win the shot put tournament. You know, you don't have legs, you can run a marathon. You can cross the finish line. And you know people respond to that. And that's why people want to wear a Nike shirt because of what it says. They just happen to sell shoes and sweatpants and hats and across all these different categories. So I wanted to build a charity that said, great compassion and generosity and empathy is within you. You have the power to improve others' lives. You have the power to end needless suffering with your time, with your talent, with your money. And it should be really fun. So come join us because we're doing that every day and it's a blast and invite people into that and care about the way things looked and care about the design and the branding. And my first hire was someone to help with water programs. And my second hire was a creative director to design and build a beautiful brand. And I, I married her two years later. I literally was married to the brand for a decade and cared so much and kind of had a thought partner there. So give away 100%, prove where the money goes, build a beautiful, inspirational brand that used very different messaging than charities typically had. And then the most important thing probably was working through local partners. I didn't want to send white people to Africa or to India or to Southeast Asia. I wanted to take the role of raising awareness and money, getting people to care about this issue, but then helping to train, grow the local organizations so they could lead their communities forward in a sustainable way. So... Rwandan hydrologists, you know, Ethiopians in Ethiopia. And, uh, you know, today that looks like 1500 locals that we support through a partner network around 24 different countries. And you won't see any people that look like me over there. You might see us with clipboards every once in a while auditing and going and, and helping to ask questions about capacity and what training do they need? What skills, what tools do they need? But the work really is led by locals. All that stuff was so different at the time 10 years ago that we just exploded. 
And people had never seen anything like this. People just started throwing money at us. And so just over a decade later, how much total money have you raised? Uh, over a quarter of a billion dollars now from over a million people. So it's been you know, very grassroots, probably 1.2, maybe 1.3 million givers. How did you accomplish all that with $100 in two separate bank accounts? Well, it was really hard, Brad. <laughs> a lot of work. <laughs> A lot of flights, a lot of, uh, you know, we, we, like any startup, we all worked 80, 90 hour weeks for the first couple of years. And, you know, being married to uh, the creative director kind of helped because, you know, we would leave the office at one in the morning and we'd go back at 10 or 11 the next day on weekends and just worked incredibly hard. The business model was really challenging. You know, out of the gate, we started raising millions for the water projects. And uh, a year and a half in, I almost bankrupted the thing. So we, we almost ran out of money to pay our small staff at the time. But yet we had all of this money, $881,000 specifically, that we couldn't touch. So the bank account for the water projects would have covered burn for nine months. And I'm about to miss payroll because this bank account has almost nothing left. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, like the advice I was getting from you know, the finance people at the time was, dude, go borrow from the 800 grand, like write a IOU. Money's fungible. You'll pay it back. You know, you got to pay your people. They've left these jobs to come and serve, and you know, you have to take care of your people. And I remember just being so offended by that idea. If we touched one penny of the public's money, our integrity would be compromised. There would be a crack at the foundation. We might as well all, you know, hang our heads and resign in shame and leave the country because we'd made this bold promise that 100% would go. So you know, I was really looking at sending out all $881,000, building as many water projects as we could, and then shutting down the organization. And uh, I remember praying with very little faith at the time for some sort of miracle. And you know, wouldn't you know it, a couple of weeks later, a complete stranger walks into our office, sits down with me, spends two hours listening to me about the organization and the struggles and the vision, and wires a million dollars into the overhead account. And we go from dead to 13 months of, of capital. And we use that extra year to build what is now a pretty sophisticated multi-tier, multi-year program where 117 families support our $12 million overhead here in New York at different levels. And it's now some of the most incredible people have joined that giving circle. The founders of Facebook, the founders of Twitter, the founders of Spotify, senior execs at Apple, which has been pretty cool. Having Johnny Ive and Angela Arendt as a part of that group, helping to pay for our overhead. So we didn't compromise. Could have ended very differently. If some guy didn't walk in and give a million dollars, we wouldn't be having this interview. And I probably would have tried to reboot with the traditional business model where you just throw all the money into one pile. You take care of yourself first. And then what's left goes to the poor and the programs. But we were really fortunate to be able to to make it work. And you know, we're still paying by credit cards this day, which now costs hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. <laughs> Sounded like a good idea 10 years ago, but I just believe if we're going to say 100%, it's 100%. We really, you know, if you're a donor and you give a thousand, you don't want me proving 972. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not thinking about the Amex transaction fee, even though that's all we got. You want us proving a thousand dollars. So we've been fortunate to find a way to do it. Is there anything, thinking back to that make or break conversation, that million dollar conversation, is there anything that sticks out to you as like, this is what I said and where he got it? Uh, it's funny. I was just with, it was a tech entrepreneur, amazing guy named Michael Birch, who had started a social network called Bebo that he wound up selling to AOL. 
And I've been to nine countries with the family now. And I was in Uganda with him a few weeks ago. And uh, he was going to give the money before he met me. So really, it was mine to lose. It was about the brand. It was about the business model. They had spent a lot of time on our website. We had really cared. Even a year and a half in, we had a robust website. And he had just never seen anything that looked like that. This is not a guy that had given to charity. This was one of those cynical people. So... Yeah, he was coming. Uh, it was funny because he wanted to write a million dollar check, and his wife said, "Well, you can't write a million dollar check. Like, what if you lose it? Or you know, imagine him taking that to the bank." So they had to figure out how to wire a million dollars, and it took him a day or two after that meeting. So I didn't know any of that at the time. I just thought I was, you know, telling the story for the seven hundredth time, you know, that year. And uh, we were very fortunate, and they've now given over fifteen million dollars to the organization. Um, have gone really deep with us. And, I've been able to take their kids around the world and watch them kind of grow up with charity water. Yeah, so it's been amazing. Well, it's interesting because principle number three, the storytelling is what actually sustained you guys when you really dig into that story, right? So let's go there because my buddy John sent me, it was about a 20 minute video where you guys rolled out the spring and yep. we can dig into what the spring is here in a second, but we help financial advisors tell their story for a living. Yeah. So nothing... It's not something that I'm unfamiliar with, the crafting of a personal story and how impactful that can be for a business. But man, you guys take storytelling to a whole nother level. I mean, literally, I was just tearing up from a video from some random guy named Scott that I've never met before that runs a charity I really didn't know much about. So can you dig in? What's the secret to how you craft a story that's so impactful because you guys have a serious gift for it? So I would say that that is one of the unique things that we're good at. People are always kind of asking, well, what's the secret sauce? Is it branding? Is it the 100% model? I think we could have a bad looking website and you know, even lose the 100% model, but still be pretty successful because of the storytelling. I think you know, when it comes to major giving, people give to people. And I'm sure that's true in your world. A lot of your financial advisors are probably not winning business necessarily on the merits of their business, but really on the merits of the relationship or their values that they've shared with a client. So it's interesting thinking about these 117 wealthy families, very accomplished people, you know, CEOs of huge companies and internet entrepreneurs. I would say less than 20 came to us because of the issue of water. They weren't you know, looking for the biggest water charity to support. They came to us because of the way that we were doing it, the values of the organization, the story, the people that they met, you know, personified values of innovation, of disruption, of integrity, of generosity, of respect, of honor, like all this kind of the soft stuff mm-hmm. is I think why you know, these people have chosen to support the overhead, to support the behind the scenes. So I would say, you know, when it comes to telling a personal story, I've just been so open about, you know, my drug use, my porn addiction. I mean, like, I've just been so open about that, that I think in a way, there's power and truth and there's power and transformation. And, you know, it's not who I've been for 12 years. I'm married. I've got kids. You know, I walked away from that life many, many years ago. And I think just being open and vulnerable about my past has really helped. And, you know, there's a bit of... um I don't know. I mean, I hear all the time that people will come across our story and sometimes they'll leave their job or they'll start a nonprofit or they'll take a leap of faith or that thing that, I mean, if a nightclub promoter can raise a quarter of a billion dollars and give 7 million people clean water, 
you know, come on, what can a person with a credible job, <laughs> a degree do? So, you know, I think the organization tells stories. We see stories everywhere. We see stories in really counterintuitive places. I'll just give you one example. So I like to tell stories that speak to values. And I'm very intentional about what values we are trying to convey when we tell a story. So I'll give you an example. We crowdsourced a million-dollar drilling rig five years ago. We have a huge program in Ethiopia. 600 locals are working on Charity Waters work there now in a state called Tigray in the north. And we just needed more drilling rigs to go faster. So I wondered if we could crowdsource it. So I put up a million-dollar drilling rig on the internet. I flew to the factory. I told the story of the craftsman, the family business that was making these drilling rigs for 100 years. So people knew they were just the small Italian family that loved to make drilling rigs. And they'd given us a great deal on it. And long story short, 10,000 people came together in this campaign. They raised $1.1 million. And now we had another rig. We painted it yellow. We threw the logo on it. We put a bunch of names of the people that had given on the rig. We put a GPS tracker to the rig. And we gave it a Twitter account. So you could follow our rig. You still can in real time as it drives around Ethiopia, drilling 90 wells every single year, helping 90 communities get clean water. So that story happened. I felt great. We closed the loop. You know, we did it in a different way than just showing, you know, your family a photo and GPS of a well that you built. But I learned five years later that our rig has crashed. And apparently it is just belly up, wheels in the air on some dirt road in Ethiopia. And I think our local partners were a little sheepish to shout this, you know, from the mountaintops. I don't remember. I heard it from a staff member here. They weren't um, tweeting that out is what you're saying. They weren't tweeting that we crashed the rig, right? This is interesting. So I think it was going to take about a month to get it back up and running again. My reaction is to try to dispatch a film crew immediately to get me that high-res image and make me a video of my crashed rig so that I can send it to the 10,000 people that paid for it with an email subject that said, your rig crashed. Because it's true. Yeah. And that story speaks to the values of our local partners who are not drilling wells by the highway, by the paved roads, but are trying to serve the most forgotten remote communities. And sometimes probably shouldn't have been on that road. The road wasn't wide enough, but their desire to serve that community, you know, led to an accident. And by the way, we've all had accidents. You know, we've all had car crashes. We've all, you know, hit somebody in a parking lot and. It's true and it's raw and it's real. So unfortunately, by the time you know, I found out and we tried to send them there, they already had the rig repaired and back and drilling again. But that's not how most people would think. They would think that is a story to be suppressed, not a story to be celebrated. And you know, we have tons of examples over the last 10 years where we'll, we'll share a story of failure because it speaks to the tenacity of a local partner. It speaks to the complexity of the work. It shows how hard it really is. And, you know, we've seen those stories resonate with people. Very cool. Well, I have to get to this story. And I very well may cry on this, but that's cool. We'll put it out to the world, speaking of being vulnerable, right? So the story of Rachel. I'm a dad. You're a dad. Yeah. I've got a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a one-year-old. And it speaks to... I mean, we're talking about the story of Charity Water and how powerful that was. It's so powerful. You created movements. You've created movements where 50-year-olds are giving away their birthdays. Yeah. Five, six, seven-year-olds are literally giving their birthday gifts and saying, donate to Charity Water instead. 
people are climbing mountains and raising money for charity water. And there was a little girl named Rachel that uh, her story just crushed me. But um, yeah, yeah, I'll tell it. I mean, the birthday idea was something we stumbled upon, Brad. And we wanted an idea that was for everyone where people, they didn't necessarily just have to give money, but they could also raise money and they could involve their friends and their family in, in something really good and redemptive and beautiful. And we thought, what if we could kind of redeem the birthday, right? Birthdays have become pretty materialistic. They're really about us, right? I throw a party to celebrate myself. People send me gifts that I don't need. I don't need another tie or a wallet or a belt or, you know, women probably don't need another handbag or a pair of shoes or we don't need the $50 or $100 Amazon gift card when so many people are living without their basic needs. So I thought, what if we could just get people to donate their birthdays to Charity Water? And I thought the sticky marketing story would be to ask for your age and dollars. So I tried this with my 32nd birthday. And I said, surely everyone I know has $32 that they could donate to charity. If 100% of the money went and they could see photo and GPS proof of the projects as they were built. So I wound up raising about $59,000. Just as I emailed everyone I knew and it spread and friends and friends started giving... Then this idea just took off and 61-year-olds donated their birthday, 89-year-olds donated their birthday. And then this extraordinary little girl named Rachel donated her ninth birthday. She'd seen me speak in Seattle. And at the end of my talk, uh, I think there were a thousand people there. I said, hey, look, there's one thing everybody in this audience could do. Donate your next birthday and turn it into a giving moment that involves your friends and your family and your loved ones and your coworkers. And your birthday can help people have more birthdays. They can live longer, more healthy, prosperous lives with clean water because of you. So Rachel's ninth was about to take place. She cancels her birthday party, tells her mom she doesn't want any gifts. And she tries to raise $300, which would help 10 people get access to clean water. Falls a little short. She raises $220. And you know, her mom says she was bummed. She actually felt like she'd let people down and would try harder next year for her 10th birthday. So when her campaign happened, I was in Central African Republic at the time. And right after her birthday, I land and I turn on my phone and I get a text from her local pastor saying, Hey, this little girl in my church named Rachel, she did this campaign for charity water and she just been killed in a car crash. And there was a 20 car pileup, a tractor trailer had lost control. She was the only fatality. And he said her last wish was to help kids get clean water through your charity. And I'd like to honor her last wish. So um, we're going to reopen her campaign, asked us to reopen the campaign. And he said, I'm going to try and get everybody in my church to donate $9 in her honor. So I remember, you know, walking up the stairs, we had a 72 stair walk up at the time in New York City and sitting down on the couch, telling my wife the story, pulling up the page and donating that $80 with tears in my eyes, you know, kind of watching her hit her goal in that moment. And then I started to see the $9 come in. And Rachel's story spread from her little church in Seattle throughout the community, started spreading around America to the morning shows, to the New York Times, started spreading to Europe. People in Africa started donating to this nine-year-old girl who had cared about them and had died tragically before realizing her goal. And it was just so moving. Over 30,000 people heard about Rachel's story and contributed. And she wound up raising $1.3 million dollars. So from $220 that she saw alive to $1.2 million, inspiring so many strangers. And I I met her mom 
soon after in New York City in the green room of uh, a morning show. And I remember just blurting out the minute I saw Samantha, they said, you've got to spend the one year anniversary of your daughter's death with me in Ethiopia, where the projects were going to be built. You have to see for yourself the lives that your daughter's vision will change. And you know, mom starts crying. I start crying. She says, I'd love to come. Can I bring Rachel's grandparents? And that was a, such a moving experience. A year later, to take Rachel's mom and grandparents village to village to village to meet the thousands of kids that were helped, the thousands of women and, and men through those projects. You wound up giving, at the time, over 30,000 people clean water for the first time. And I just remember... Oh, it was just so moving. I mean, women would come up to Rachel's mom and they would throw themselves prostate at her feet. They were weeping and they would say through translators, you know, we know your pain. We've lost children too, but your daughter's death was not in vain. It's given us life. And one of the cool things was this was years ago and, and just recently, you know, on the anniversary of, on a recent anniversary of Rachel's death, we looked at what happened to the people that gave to her campaign. And we found out so many of them were inspired to take the birthday idea that they had gone on to raise another $2 million. So her impact is now over $3 million and counting. This little nine-year-old girl has helped 100,000 people get clean water for the first time in their life. And I just, there's so much in that story for us. The purity of heart, the you know, a nine-year-old is not yet cynical about the world. A nine-year-old says, why are kids drinking dirty water? And why would I want birthday gifts if I could help just a few of them? And it just resonated with so many people here at the organization and so many people around the world. We made a beautiful video that you know, maybe you could put in the show notes of, of that day of what Rachel's Wells look like. And it's hard to get through that video without crying. <laughs> yeah. It's a wonderful testament to Rachel's legacy. That's a powerful story. It's amazing. You know, I think all of us in business like to think that we all work hard. We've all been pretty successful. We work with a lot of very successful people. And that story right there shows a nine-year-old has outachieved the vast majority of all of us right there with just the intent, right? Yeah. Oh. Uh, I mean, it's humbling for us, you know? I mean, I, uh, there's a lot of people here at my office that still, uh, still have their own birthday. So it's a challenging... It's a challenging thing. I think I've given up eight birthdays now. I, I made my son give up his birthday and said, look, don't send any baby gifts. Let's just help people get clean water, trying to start a legacy for him. And you know, he wound up raising a bunch of money. And hopefully one day when he's a little older, I can take him to meet some of those people and much better than toys. Yeah. Or blankets. <laughs> so what, Scott, and we'll wrap here in a second. I want to ask you some philosophical questions, but what is it do you think about Charity Water? If we can just kind of wrap this and kind of the story and the movement, what was it about Charity Water that you think made it such an easy, I won't say easy story because obviously you've dedicated a lot of work and your heart and soul into this movement, but what, what is it that makes this such a powerful movement and makes it an idea that people spread over and over and over? One thing that comes to mind is that we're very intentional not to make ourselves the hero. So we really look at our role as the guide. And maybe this is relevant for some of your advisors. You know, so many organizations position themselves as the great hope. Look how great we are, right? We're digging wells around the world. Celebrate us. We haven't done that for 10 years. We've celebrated our community. We've celebrated nine-year-old girls like Rachel. 
We celebrated our local partners who might crash a rig from time to time to serve their own communities and lead their people and their countries forward. We celebrate our volunteers. I celebrate our staff. We celebrate donors, supporters, beneficiaries, partners. It's really about everybody else except us. And I think that's allowed people to really take ownership of the story. Whether it's climbing a mountain, donating a birthday, writing a $10,000 check to give an entire community clean water. I think there's also just the purity of the business model and the way cash flows. And I remember years ago, we asked KPMG to come in and actually audit our 100% model. And they'd never been asked to do this before. You know, We wanted just to make sure that everybody knew this was really true. So they come in and they test every single donation that we use for overhead and find the paper documentation from these families saying, you can only use this money for overhead. So I think the layers, as people peel back the layers of the organization, you know, we've only received the highest marks from every charity watchdog group in the history of the organization. You know, it actually gets better as people go deeper and they meet the people here and they understand some of the sacrifices people have made to really use their gifts and their money in the service of others. So yeah, I don't think it's any one thing, but we just keep telling the story and we keep inviting everyday people, rich, poor, into this community, you know, ask them to make the story their own and just give them the tools to share it. Well, you're obviously doing an incredible job. And what I love is how your success to this point is astronomical. And you have this moonshot vision of everyone in the world needs clean water. We're not even getting started yet. So I just want to... We got a lot more. We're 1%. Charity water is 1% of the problem solved. So we need a lot more resources. We need to go a lot faster. You know, I'd love to see this done before I die. And I really think we can. Mm-hmm. All right, Scott, if you're up for it, we'll wrap with a few questions. This has been an incredible conversation. So, Let's do it. All right. So I have to ask you this one with your story and the different twists and turns that it's taken along the way. If you could go back and at what age would you say was the height of your nightclub promotion days? How old were you? Probably 25. 25. And you're how old now? 41. 41. So if 41-year-old Scott could go back and just pull 25-year-old Scott aside and say, you know, hey, buddy, let's have a chat. What would that conversation sound like right now? I think I would just beat the crap out of him. <laughs> Leave him bloody on the side of the road and say, go get a real job, bro. <laughs> um, I think, you know, it would be something along the lines of just, you know, you're wasting your talents. I mean, in a way, you know, that parable, the talents, it was worse than bearing it. <laughs> I mean, I was polluting people for a living. Um, I probably would have tried to talk about legacy or values or, you know, bro, do you want to be known for getting a million people drunk? You know, do you want to be known for wrecking marriages because you know you gave forty-five-year-old bankers access to twenty-year-old girls? And is that what you want your life to stand for? Is that how you want to take your gifts? I don't know that I would have listened at that point. Mm. You know, I think uh, we all have to go through our own journey. You know, I'm glad I got out at twenty-eight. You know, I used to probably years ago have more regrets about the decade or, you know, what if I'd started this organization or 20 or 22? And what if I'd skipped that whole phase? I do think it would be a different organization. You know, I, I learned things then that I've been able to redeem and use for good. Some of the relationships, some of the storytelling, just being a little older and wiser, 
there's no allure in that. You know, I mean, I have such an extreme life, even today. I'll go from a $5 a night hotel in rural Ethiopia to a $45 million home in Pacific Heights, San Francisco in 24 hours. And, you know, I've been able to do that without judging a family who might live in a $40 million home and just encouraging them to be generous and watching them find the joy of giving. But I don't know. I think in a way, having done it all, that's not alluring. You know, I'm not driven by money and there's no allure in drugs or girls or any of the stuff that I used to chase anymore. You know, the values have really shifted for me. Mm. So much in that answer. I've got a friend that I've been in some mastermind groups with Darren Hardy that wrote a book called The Compound Effect. And you embody the compound effect. Okay. <laughs> and that's a good thing. Uh, the compound effect is, you know, incremental little things done over time. It's the compound interest, right? It, they add up over time. And just your answer there, when you started out in life as a younger guy, you had the compound effect going. It was just in the wrong direction, not only for you, but everybody that hung out with you. Um, yeah. You were compounding bad decisions and ending marriages and you know, everything else that comes along with that world. And you flipped, you turned the 180. And now that compound effect, Rachel's story, that's the compound effect in motion. And yeah. you're, you're taking that and just compounding it for good. And so, so cool to hear that answer from my side. <laughs> All right, let's go to this one. When you hear the word successful, who's the first person you think of and why? Uh, Dr. Gary Parker. He was the chief medical officer on that ship. He was a very accomplished surgeon in Orange County, Southern California. And he signed up for three months. And he's still there 28 years later. Hmm. He's never went back. And I'd never met anyone like that before. And he you know, was really a mentor of mine. He has... I, I can't even tell you how many people he would have given sight to over almost three decades. How many lives saved? How many people are walking because of him? How many people have you know, range in motion back as he's released their burns and contractures? That's what successful would be. He lives in about, I think, 300 square feet with his kids in the cabin on the ship. I remember a piece of his story. He brought his whole entire family with him to live on the ship, yeah, right? They grew up going to school on the ship and you know, sailing around Africa and being exposed to it. I'm hoping to uh, hire his daughter to intern one day. Very cool. She just went off to college. That's cool to see that story come full circle for you. Yeah. It has to be rewarding, I would think. Yeah, amazing guy. All right, two questions. You good for two more? Yep. What's the favorite book you've ever read and how has it impacted your life? I probably have to go with the Bible here. It was rediscovering the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus and the way that he lived his life was was really important for me. I remember kind of discovering the message translation, which uh, just made it a lot more today, a lot more now. And, you know, I've read that a bunch over the years, but, you know, that's probably the thing, you know, that would be the moral compass. And, you know, the organization is not a faith-based organization. I never wanted to start something with any strings. I wanted to build a very big tent and it's been super exciting watching Muslims and Jews and atheists and Mormons and Jehovah's Witness and Hindus. And, you know, we have the, one of the most diverse groups of supporters. But, you know, for me, you know, it's really been birthed out of uh, an experience that I had, you know, out of uh, Christian faith and Christian values that I just try to live out personally every day and invite everybody else along for the ride when it comes to the organization. Mm. 
My favorite verse is a, is a book in James. There's a verse from the book of James that was really transformative. And it said, true religion is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep from being polluted by the world. So I was 0 for 2. <laughs> I'd done nothing for the poor, nothing for widows and orphans. And I you know, was the most polluted person that I knew. So the simplicity of that, you know, a life poured out in service of others and personal integrity and values and, you know, a pure or unpolluted life. I've gone back to that a lot. Okay. Last question. What is the one piece of advice you can share with our audience that's led to your success? I think uh, the more you give and however you give, the more joy you find, the more freedom you find, freeing yourself of maybe a, of a love of possessions or a love of money or a love of, of investments or, or numbers and ownership. It's exhilarating. And I've seen people go through that process and really find the joy in generosity, the joy in giving. And, you know, I remember years ago, my wife and I switched all of our personal giving, you know, which is limited because we're on, we were on two nonprofit salaries. Now we're on one, but we switched it all to overhead. So, you know, any organization we would give to, we would say, we want to pay for the stuff no one else wants to. Take that extra flight home to see your family, go pay for the phone bill, go fix the roof. You know, we want the most awful overheady costs because we believe you and we want to support you. So I found even that was, was a lot of fun. You know, I don't want the orphan to write me every month. You know, that's easy. Give that to some cynic. You know, I want to support you and your family you know, in a meaningful way so that you don't burn out, that you can help doing this work. So my ambition really around money is to write a million dollar check personally to a charity. And I don't know if that'll ever be possible, but someone did it for me once and I'd love to return the favor. So it's, you know, our ambitions are not around the house in the Hamptons or driving a Tesla or, you know, fancy vacations. It's really being able to give of our own money. And it's great. I, I realize I'm giving time and I've raised a quarter of a billion dollars and, you know, for the poor, all that's great. But there's something about giving your own money away that I wish I could do at a, at a greater level. Mm. I cool. have to get my wife a two bedroom first because I got two kids in a one bedroom at the moment in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> for, your, for your sanity and for your marriage. That's a good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott, I just want to say from my standpoint, thank you. It's incredible. This podcast has taught me a lot, but one of the biggest lessons it's taught me is great people are surrounded by other great people. And I just, I'm overwhelmed by guys like John that continue to introduce me to guys like yourself that are out there doing big things, changing the world. And some people say that metaphorically, you're literally doing it. And the cool thing is you've helped save millions of lives. And I'm inspired by this conversation because I just get this impression. You feel like you're just getting started. And I just love to see the vision, the hunger, the passion behind that. So I just want to say thank you for myself, for all our Blueprint listeners here. And I just want to leave you with one ask. How can the listeners help? Where can we go to... Sure. Yeah, thanks for that. We'd love for people to get involved. They can just go to charitywater.org. You could donate your birthday. Some people might have the ability to sponsor an entire community. My wife and I do at least one every year. You know, There are a lot of things that cost $10,000 in the world. And giving clean water for 300 people, I'd argue, is one of the best values for that. And you know, we've done many personally over the years as we've been able. And then the last thing is, it, you briefly touched on it, but you know, we just launched a new giving community to start our 11th year called The Spring, where we're really asking people just to partner with us every month. 
it's difficult starting at zero every January one. You, know, you work really hard and you tell a bunch of stories and make a lot of speeches and people are moved, they give. But we're really trying to build a community of people in this second decade who can give 30 bucks a month to give one person clean water. Some people might be able to give $100 a month, give a few people clean water and actually get to know the organization month in, month out, get to see the impact of those dollars transforming lives. So that's called The Spring. And uh, we just launched a new film that you were referring to. It's just, if you go to charitywater.org slash The Spring Film, you can see some of the images that I was referring to. See what Dr. Gary Parker looks like and Rachel's stories in that as well. So that's just a great way to share our story with others. You know, there's not a marketing budget at the organization. It's all word of mouth. And we really rely on, you know, on people just to learn more about us, to get involved, and then tell their friends. All right, Scott. Well, I appreciate the time. And thanks for all you're doing. It's been an incredible conversation. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right, Scott. Take care, bud. See you, Brad. See ya. Bye. Thanks for giving this week's show a listen, guys. Here's a review from Josh Coombs. He says, Elite Advisor Blueprint is top-notch. Let's face it, there are a lot of financial podcasts out there, but what differentiates Brad's Elite Advisor Blueprint is not only his innovation, but the caliber of guests that he interviews is second to none. Thanks, Josh. I mean, that's an incredible compliment, man. So I appreciate that. From Donald Miller to John Rulin, you won't run across any better thought leaders with the expertise necessary to take your financial firm to elite status. Yeah. So man, super kind words, Josh. I appreciate it. You know, It's really my goal. I do my very best to keep an incredibly high caliber of guests for the show. So that type of review, those type of comments, I absolutely love hearing that feedback. And so that means the world. We're going to try to keep it going, man. For those out there who haven't given a review yet, I'd love if you'd take a quick second to do so at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash iTunes. We've made it as easy as possible for you. And by the way, if you've got ideas for future guests we need to have on the show, make sure to include them there as well as we read all the comments. And yeah, I'd love to get some good ideas for future guests there. Thanks for listening to this week again with Scott. An amazing conversation. And yeah, until next time, we'll catch you on the next show. Take care. The information and opinions contained herein are provided by third parties and have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed by Advisors Excel. The guest speaker is not affiliated with or sponsored by Advisors Excel for financial professional use only, not to be used with the general public or in a sales situation.